we will actually be using our NVGs during the daytime. Sometimes you can get more nighttime on your day shift than the night pilot gets on the night shift. You're listening to the Rotary Wing Show, a show for helicopter aircrew by helicopter aircrew. Each episode, we explore the world of helicopters with the people that fly and support them. If you want to catch up on past shows or see photos from the interviews, head over to rotarywingshow.com. I forget you can also subscribe on iTunes. Just search for Rotary Wing Show and get future episodes direct to your phone. I'm your host, Mick Cullen. Episode 8 of the Rotary Wing Show takes us way up north to Alaska. Today we get to talk with Lorena Knapp to find out a little bit more about EMS operations and also a little about flying conditions in Alaska. Lorena flies A-stars for the company Air Methods and is also a speaker, writer, blogger and accountability coach. She even has a, a TED talk to her name. So let's head over and meet Lorena. Lorena Knapp, thank you so much for joining us on the Rotary Wing Show. And yeah, we've got a heap of stuff to talk about because you've got a whole heap of different things going on besides just flying as an EMS pilot, but also in Alaska and some things outside of flying that uh, are quite interesting too. So we'll chat about those. So thanks very much for having the time to join us today. You're welcome. I'm happy to be here. Excellent. Well, Lorena, let's um, quickly talk about, so if people are looking and want to get a background idea of you, there's a couple of things out there for yourself, but you've just got a, a new website you've rebranded, which is Lorena Knapp. So that's K-N-A-P-P.com. Uh, so Lorena Knapp.com. And uh, they can find out a lot of that stuff that you're doing and, and see a photo of you there, as well as on the uh, show notes for this episode when it goes live. But uh, Lorena, can you tell us what's your current flying role? Where are you? Uh, what are you doing? Yeah, so um, right now I fly a medevac helicopter. I'm based in a small town called Soldatna, which is on the Kenai Peninsula of Alaska, which is south of Anchorage. The majority of the population in Alaska lives in the south central area. So um, what I'm doing is we take basically anybody that gets hurt south of Anchorage north into Anchorage to the, a higher level of care to what is, you know, the best hospital in Alaska. And then if that person was hurt really extensively, they would be flown to Seattle to get even more care. Like we don't have a burn center in Alaska. So any burn patients go outside of Alaska to Seattle. And then there is one other helicopter that's uh, same company that's based north of Anchorage. And then they bring everybody um, from the north into Anchorage from that side. Sure. Okay. So you're basically covering north and south and, and just getting yeah. them to the, to the main point. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, for the geography challenge, so how far from the Canadian border are, are you guys? Oh, we're quite a ways. I mean, I think that's probably the hardest bit for people to imagine is how big Alaska is. I couldn't fly there in a day. In a, I'm flying an A star, um, so I couldn't fly there in a day. It would be it would be a several day, well, long, really long day, perhaps to get there. But it's hundreds and hundreds of miles. I don't actually know. But a long way. <laughs> yeah, okay. And often, because when you look at the map, um, I guess the projection of things too is because you guys are close to the pole, it sort of does things to the, the size of the uh, the area. Uh, yeah, it would be really great to see an overlay of Alaska with Australia. You know, I mean, because essentially if you overlay Alaska with the rest of the U.S., where I live would be like Kansas. And to get to the to the Canadian border would be like the Carolinas or the East Coast. So quite a ways away, half the country away. <laughs> All right, I'll have to track mine down and have a look and see if one's yep. been done. All right, well, let's talk about uh, helicopters then. So how did you get into helicopters and into flying? 
Well, um, so I'm born and raised here in Alaska, which isn't necessarily that common. But in Alaska, we have a lot of general aviation. It's been something that, you know, aviation and Alaska have kind of grown up together in a lot of ways because everything is so remote. There's not a lot of roads to a lot of places. So airplanes were quite common. And it's not uncommon to own one. And so my dad had an airplane. Um, He had a a 185. And uh, I learned to fly in that airplane, which is, I didn't know at the time, kind of a challenge to learn in, in that kind of airplane. But, you know, made it work. And he was always great about letting me use his airplane. But I never really imagined flying as a career because what I imagined was flying for the airlines and flying a big jet. And and I was not the kind of person and I'm not the kind of person who wants to just push a button and babysit an airplane for six hours and then you get off on the other side. So I never imagined flying as a career. And I actually um, followed my mother's footsteps. I was a teacher. I taught elementary school um, for a period of time. But I always knew that I would fly. And my dad wasn't a professional pilot either. He was an engineer. Um, but he just, you know, was a, a, a big hobby of his. And he actually commuted with his airplane. I grew up in a small town outside of Anchorage called Big Lake and not far from where Sarah Palin lives. <laughs> and uh, we, we, he would fly his airplane to Anchorage to work. And so he'd fly in morning and evening. And it was just kind of a thing that he really enjoyed doing. He, he could have driven and he did drive periodically, but that was something that he enjoyed. So flying was, you know, very common growing up. But again, I didn't want to be an airline pilot. So I didn't really think about a career in aviation. Uh, but I could. My dad was very great, and he would let me use his airplane um, on the weekends and and in the summers. And so he would let me borrow the airplane, and oh, I'd sort of split fuel with him, and like most daughters, and not really always fill up the airplane as well as I could have. <laughs> Um, like the family car, but he was good about that. And then what happened was I took a helicopter ride and I was like, oh, this is really it. Um, but, you know, the cost of helicopters is extremely expensive. So it's not something that you can really do as a hobby. So what I opted to do was I took a leave of absence from my teaching job and decided to go ahead and get my private helicopter license and, and just really be sure that that was something I wanted to do. And um, it was great at the time. What I really started out when I started flying was I thought what I would do was I would fly in the summers because I love flying around Alaska and I love showing it to people. And then I would teach in the winters. Um, but as I first started in my career, you know, you have to build time and get qualifications and you can't really take those kind of breaks. I I just wasn't, I didn't have the experience to be able to really set my own schedule like that. And then what I realized is that I love flying so much. Um, and I, you know, don't work nearly as hard as when I was a teacher and I get paid better that I can have flying be my job and teaching kind of be my hobby. And so I've kind of reversed what I had originally intended doing. Um, and I've been really happy with my decision and, and, you know, would do it again in a heartbeat. Let's step back a bit, though. So you obviously got your, your fixed-wing license. So how old yeah. were you when you were borrowing Dad's plane and, and, and going and flying? <laughs> well, I didn't actually get my license until I was – I think I was 24 or 25. Um, but one year I was a, a freshman in high school, and I worked with him, which was really fun. And so in that daily commute, I got to fly with him every day. So we had this little mini flight lesson back and forth to work for 20 minutes, which was kind of the length of the flight. And really by the end of the summer, you know, if I had really applied myself, I'm sure that I could have gotten my license that summer because we flew so much. I was very comfortable in that airplane. Um, But I didn't actually finish until I was um, back home from college. I went outside um, for college um, to California and then came back. So it was after that um, when I actually finished. Okay. Lorena, what sort of machine did you do your training in on the helicopter side? 
in the helicopters I started here in Alaska, um, there was a school that had just opened up, which is still in existence, but it, it sort of changed over a little bit since then. It was really started by a person. He actually owns Alaska Helicopters, and his intention was to sell helicopters, not really to have a school. <laughs> and so, um, that, but then people like me kept showing up that wanted to really actually have it as a career, and uh, he kind of had to re-switch things around a little bit. But I did get my private license up here in Alaska, and then I realized it was going to be faster and cheaper to finish it um, in the lower 48. And so I went to Oregon, and I went to Hillsboro Aviation, which is a pretty big school, and finished up down there. So I worked uh, another seven months or something to get all of my ratings, and then I worked as a flight instructor at Hillsboro Aviation for um, about 13 months. Okay, and what sort of machines was that that you were all, flying? Yeah, sorry, all to R22s. Um, they did have the Schweitzer there, but I never flew it very much. But So all 1,000 uh, hours of time there was in an R22. Wow, 1,000 hours of R22 time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay, and then um, and again, just looking at your LinkedIn profile, so you then went to the Gulf of Mexico after that, was that right? Yeah, and so my intention was always to come back to Alaska. And Aero Helicopters was started in Alaska, then they sort of got, they went into the Gulf of Mexico because they do primarily oil and gas and are involved in the oil and gas industry. And um, they actually, their base of operations at the time was much larger in the Gulf of Mexico. But I knew that if by getting on in the Gulf of Mexico, which was easier to get hired on it, that I would have an easier time of transferring home to Alaska. So I kind of went south to Louisiana to eventually get back home to Alaska. And so I had two winters basically flying in the Gulf of Mexico. And thank goodness, because my poor, thin Alaskan blood was not going to do well in the Gulf of Mexico. I was afraid. And I, my, my goal was when I started, I either have to, A, get out of here for a season of tours in Alaska, or I have to upgrade to a machine that's got air conditioning. And I started in an A-star. So I've kind of come full circle in my career. Um, but I had that first winter. And I was really, I, I felt really lucky. I didn't fly a lot, but I was never assigned to a specific contract. So I flew all over the Gulf of Mexico and got to see many different places and many different types of operations and many different ty- types of flying contracts. And so that was a really great experience to have such amount of variety given how much I was flying. And what type of roles were you doing? Was it out to rigs or what yes, was it? it was, so it was crew change on rigs, but I also was um, frequently uh, the parts deliverer to from one base to another. So I, I flew doors across the Gulf of Mexico from one place to the other. I flew, uh, I repositioned a lot of aircraft from one place to another. They also had what they called the loop birds. And so you would actually stay offshore for, um, you'd come back on your fourth night. So you'd have three nights offshore and you'd come back that fourth night for maintenance. And then you'd go back out for three days. And I don't know what it's like in the oil and gas industry in Australia, but in the Gulf of Mexico in particular, there are very, very few women that fly or work offshore. So that provided another whole set of um, interesting um, dynamics and complications as well. And in Alaska, we I think a little bit more of the frontier lifestyle, it's sort of not that way as much. It's really whoever is here and able to do the job. We don't worry about traditional gender roles as much as in the Gulf of Mexico. So that was really an eye-opener for me to have that sort of bias. And I think uh, all rigs be little worlds unto their own as far as uh, (laughs) setups go. So, uh, (laughs) all right. And then, uh, so you eventually obviously got back to Alaska somehow. So what happened there? So you were flying in the Gulf. So that first summer then, after I did that first winter flying offshore, and then I was able to do a season of tours in Juneau. Um, And what was really fantastic about that was, one, I was happy to be home. And and I hadn't ever spent a lot of time in Juneau. Um, That's, you know, several, it's quite a ways away from where I live now. Um, I was able to ferry an aircraft up to Juneau. So I flew an A-star up. And uh, it was really, for me, it was a cool experience because it was an opportunity to really 
give back, my parents were able to come with me. And so it was really fun to have my dad who, you know, I had always been sort of his co-pilot. Now he was my co-pilot on the trip up. So we had a great time doing that. And then, you know, I love Alaska and tours, you know, I know people, you know, have sort of a love-hate relationship with tours, but I enjoy them. Um, Yes, you are a little bit on the merry-go-round and doing the same thing and kind of going in the swim circuit. But I mean, it's Alaska. It's beautiful. And then people tell you, 12 or 15 times a day, oh, you have the best job in the world. You have the best job in the world, you know, and you're, you're kind of like, yeah, I guess, you know, I do. All right. Okay. So that was a lot of fun. That was that first summer. And then I went back to the Gulf of Mexico again. I got upgraded. I started flying in a, a 412 actually, and then um, came back to Alaska for the second summer and did a season of tours in the Denali area, which is probably my favorite area in Alaska as far as flying and um, in the Mount McKinley area. And we would do, um, a 20-minute flight, land on a glacier, 20 minutes, 20 minutes back. And then we also had a tour where we circled. It kind of went up to Denali and then looked at it and then came back. But, you know, mountain flying, beautiful conditions, interesting wildlife. And again, people telling you all day long, you have the best job in the world. Yeah, it's good to hear that when you <laughs> it just makes it yes. everything worthwhile. But your dad must have been uh, absolutely stoked just flying back across the, uh, the U.S. back to Alaska in, in a helicopter. Had, oh, he yeah. done, had he done any helicopter flying before then? No. Um, well, he came down, actually, he came down one time um, when I was in flight school and ha- I taught him to hover in just a couple hours, which was really fun. Um, and he it was pretty funny because I was like, at one point I was like, dad, this is really expensive. <laughs> He's like, oh, I'm almost there. I almost got it. You know, <laughs> he just wouldn't, you know, let it go. But, um, but yeah, so we did that. And then other than that, no, but he did, he was in Juneau and, and came and I uh, was able to fly him there um, and then was able to fly him in Denali that summer as well. So that was really great. Okay, and you're with Air Methods now. So at some stage you made a jump across to the EMS world. So how did that happen? Yeah, so I, um, I flew for air helicopters for five years and uh, did a variety of things. I, I did those two seasons of tours, but then I actually was primarily oil and gas in Alaska with some utility work on the side. Um, and we have platforms um, not far from the area that I am now in Cook Inlet. Um, and then also on the North Slope, which is you know pretty interesting flying in the Arctic and, and the different things there. And then, um, yes, uh, it'll be four years in October uh, ago that I switched over to Air Methods and have been doing medevac flying since then. And most of that time in Alaska, was, that was still Squirrel? Or, or sorry, ASAR? Because um, then what I was flying was 212 and 412, and I actually flew in, in the 139 and was upgraded and made captain in the 139 and got my ATP checkride and um, all of that all in one day, which was pretty great. Cool. Yeah. Okay, and uh, there's not many A-stars, we, we call them squirrels in, in Australia, uh, doing EMS work. It's normally the sort of uh, larger frame, so 412 and uh, that sort of size. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so let's, let's talk a bit about the actual company then, about Air Methods, because, you know, again, that's being a provincial Aussies, it's uh, not a company I've heard of, but it's actually quite a big company. Yeah, and I was trying to find out before we, we started uh, talking here whether it's the biggest EMS company in the U.S., I think so, but I'm not 100% sure about that. But it's very large as an EMS company. There's, you know, 4,000 employees and 400-plus aircraft. But they're in these little tiny towns spread out all over the U.S., so it's not like you, you know, you see a huge fleet of them all together. Air Methods was started in the 80s. It started in Colorado and then has just built from there. It's been um, acquiring aircraft. What's interesting about Air Method is that 
they in a lot of ways have topped out with what they can purchase and acquire in the EMS industry. And so just recently they have bought Sundance Helicopters, which does tours in the Grand Canyon area. And they also do some utility work there. And they also bought Blue Hawaiian, which does a lot of tours in in Hawaii. So they are realizing that to continue to grow, they have to expand into other areas. Uh, They also have United Rotorcraft, which does um, completion work and an interior work for aircraft. So they they don't just do medevac only. There's a couple different divisions. And it looks very different because, again, in Australia, and I, I don't know, maybe it's worldwide, but a lot of the EMS services are very much uh, charity or reliant on, on funds for grants and things like that, whereas yeah. it looks very much um, sort of commercial viable. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's a challenge. Um, we've gone through some changes as far as Obamacare and the insurance in the U.S. And so the repayment rates are changing and there's some adjustment to that. It seems like it's going to be fine, but the repayment rate is pretty standard. I think what they would say is are only around 40% repayment rate. So you know that half your flights are not going to pay you, and which is really the problem with healthcare in the U.S. is that then people with insurance are paying double, really, because they're covering someone who doesn't have any insurance. And so that's kind of an adjustment. But when I traveled to New Zealand, um, we can talk about that story later, but in the U.S., we, we don't do rescue. Air Methods does not do rescue. So we can do search and assist, but we don't do any hoisting. It's rare to have an IFR program. And so Air Methods is really, you know, air ambulance. We are the ambulance, not the rescue crew. And that can be quite different in different cultures and different um, countries around the world. If we had that type of call, which, you know, like just a couple of weeks ago, I got called to a, a group of hikers and, um, you know, we had not the greatest GPS location and not the greatest GPS signal because it was in this very steep canyon valley. And uh, when we finally found them, you know, they were on like a 50 degree slope. You know, it's like, there's no way I'm going to be able to pick you up off of that. So what we do in that case then is we call in the National Guard and that is who does the rescue for us in Alaska. Or we also call in the Coast Guard, depending on who's closer. Okay, um, and so, they those, so those two organizations fulfill that sort of rescue um, side of things. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, the type of flying you're doing then, so is it kind of helipad to helipad or is it, uh, is it IFR? What kind of operations? Obviously, you're doing nighttime, it's 24-hour ops? Yep, it's 24-hour ops, and so, um, but it is a VFR program, so we have weather minimums of 1,000 feet and three miles, um, which we often don't go when it's that low because frequently that means we're going to encounter something lower in route. Um, we do have NVGs, um, so we do fly with those. I would say in my current base, it's 70% hot inner facility, so hospital to hospital, and 30% something else. So side of the road, somebody's backyard, the hiker that gets hurt, anything like that. We also will frequently do a scene call to another EMS provider. We have all of these small communities dotted through Alaska. And so we will go to their maybe local volunteer fire department, land at that volunteer fire department and meet their ambulance there and then take that person from there to the hospital. Yeah, sure. So you're really part of a network rather than being like a sole operator. So you're sort of slotting in and uh, and moving those patients you know, through that network. Yes, and we can be dispatched through um, our police organization and 911 as well. So any of those guys, you know, see an accident on the road, then they'll call us in that way too. Okay, and the basing where you're at there now, how many machines, how many pilots have you got there? Sort of what hours would you do per year? 
Yeah, so we are just a single helicopter base. Um, it's the one A-star that's here, a squirrel, and there are four pilots. We each work a seven-day shift, and we work a 12-hour day. So um, I'll do one week of the day shift, seven days straight. I'll have seven days off, and then I'll come back, and I'll do seven shifts at night. And so we switch out at 7.30, so it's 7.30 to 7.30, and um, we can obviously be held over for that 14 hours. Um, and that happens periodically, especially around here, because our flights are quite long. When I go somewhere, I'm typically gone three to five hours. Um, and that's including time for me to fly to the location, have the crew package the patient and get them ready to fly, fly to the drop-off location, drop off the patient, refuel, and then fly back to the base. Yeah, okay. And so you're carrying people in the back then. You've got a paramedic or a doctor uh, with you? Yeah, I have um, a, a nurse and a paramedic. And and the patient is really, it's, you know, it's an A-star. It's pretty small. So they're right next to me and basically up front right next to me. It looks like they're, you know, like my date at the drive-in movie. You know, they're they're right there. And um, that's an adjustment. I was a little bit of concerned about that. When I first came over from um, ERA to Air Methods, we had a BK. And so I was flying a BK, which has the curtain, right? And so then all the medical stuff is happening in the back. You have the curtain. You have a little bit of separation. And that seemed to go fine. And and then it, you know, then it was kind of the step up of, okay, now that patient's right next to you, um, which is a challenge at times because you, I mean, you can't not notice what's happening next to you. You know, it just happens. You know, obviously we are dispatched in a way that doesn't tell us anything about patient condition. I think that they do a good job of that. I think they do a good job of removing as much pressure as possible when you make the initial call to go, you know, basically the flight request is, can you check weather for a flight from, say, Seward to Anchorage? Yes or no? That's all I know. Cool. And so I take I a lot of that. Um, so really detach uh, and just yes. purely try and make it about the, uh, the the op. Yes. But then, obviously, once I get there, it's pretty obvious how that patient is doing. So then once the patient's on board, you know, now I'm I'm with them. And, and it you know, that's been a challenge at times um, to, to manage my own feelings and to fly. It's something I think that I, you know, do well, but it's not that I don't notice for sure. Yeah, no, that'd be very, yeah, very difficult sometimes, I'm sure. Have you got some really memorable, you know, obviously without details and and privacy and things, but have you got some really memorable uh, pickups or uh, transfers? Yeah, I have for sure. I mean, you know, it's not that often that you, you can really say, I saved that person's life and know that. I mean, you know, you definitely feel like you've made a contribution and that you helped or, or, but, but to really, you know, there, there's been a few where I'm like, I know that if we were not there, we would, that guy would not be alive. So we had an accidental shooting. Um, that was that way, you know, the weapon we, obviously is the U S we have everyone and it's Alaska too. Love. We have a lot of guns. So, um, so the, you know, the one guy was showing the other guy his gun and it went off. And so he shot him basically in the pelvis, um, and was bleeding internally. And you know, what's interesting is I have no medical training, zero. And I actually don't mind that it's that way because it, it, it's one step of removal for me to keep me on my job and focused on what I'm doing. But you also can look at a patient and know that is not right. You know, <laughs> like you have this inherent sense of people are not supposed to look like that. And this person in particular had, because he was bleeding internally, he basically got this basketball size blood ball on his belly, you know, and you're, I mean, there is no doubt that that he's not okay, you know, because people are not supposed to look like that. Yep. <laughs> so, um, so that guy, you know, is one that I really, it, and it went really smoothly, you know, we landed, we loaded the patient within a minute or two, we're direct to Anchorage, direct into the ER, you know, and that guy probably five minutes later wasn't going to make it because of his, the amount that he was bleeding 
we also, what's been interesting for me, you know, you always think of medevac and you think, oh, the, you know, the most, the people that are going to be closest to dying are the ones that are screaming and bleeding. But what I've learned is that the screamers and bleeders are usually doing just fine. It's the ones who aren't talking that are really not okay. Yeah, I've heard um, that about triage situations before and uh, yeah, accident scenes. And yeah, if they're, if they're screaming, well, at least you know they're breathing. And, uh, yes, exactly. And they, they're responsive in some ways. And so, um, yeah, that's been interesting. I think the one that was most traumatic um, just happened this summer. I had two really awful calls in a row with about, um, because again, we worked the, that seven days straight. I only had about 36 hours in between the two of them. And um, one was an ATV accident, uh, all-terrain vehicle, um, like a four-wheeler, and uh, was at a wedding. So all the family was right there. You know, he the kid didn't make it and have to call it on scene and, and to see that and all of them crumpling, you know, is, is hard. And then two nights later, a kid was drowning and, and CPR all the way to the hospital. And, you know, CPR is extremely violent. And to see that on a child right next to you is, is really hard. Um, so I think that was the call that's bothered me bo- most in the, in the time that I've been flying. Um, and yeah, you have wow. those you're like, Oh, I don't know if I can do this. You know, I don't know if I can do this, but you know, we haven't really talked about this, but my dad was involved in a very serious accident. Manilti and ended up dying from it in New Zealand. Um, and he flew in the same kind of helicopter I fly, you know, and I, I think about him a lot when I'm flying and I just think, you know, somebody took really good care of my dad. And as a result of the good care that he got, my sister and I were able to join my mom in New Zealand and say goodbye to him. Um, but uh, it's not easy, you know, <laughs> you know but, but I, I feel like it's important. It's important work because somebody did that for me. You know, and so it's great for me to be able to do that for another family member and to be able to give them at least the opportunity, you know, to, to do right by their by their child or their husband or their sister, or whoever that is. Oh, absolutely. And look, a, um, as we're recording this, the episode hasn't gone live, but I spoke with Etienne who flies in South Africa and they do the anti-poaching and protecting uh, rhinos over there as well. And there's certain jobs like that, which where you actually feel like you're actually achieving something rather than sort of burning uh, circuits, taking passengers uh, up over a city on joy flights. Some of those jobs out there, like like yours, you're actually, uh, you know, at the end of the day, you're really adding something to the to the community. Yeah, it's a nice feeling. All right, well, let's talk, um, let's talk about EMS now and more about Alaska, because again, a lot of folks won't have the chance to, to fly there and this might be, you know, a good opportunity to, to find out a bit more about that. Uh, so what's what's flying in Alaska like? What sort of terrains you're operating over in the heights? You know, the the whole being close to the to the, uh, the poles type things. So your day length changes. Can you talk walk us through some of those aspects? Yeah. So uh, the terrain in Alaska is really varied, and so depending on where you are, it can be really flat, which is not what people imagine at all. Very um, wet and delta like, or you know, quite mountainous. And I sort of live in the area. Anchorage is is surrounded by mountains, but it's not mountainous at the actual town. And so the base that I'm at um, is 150 feet above sea level. And um, the highest mountains in the area on a flight to Seward, which is a a common flight, it's 6,000 feet. But unlike some places in the U.S., you know, our mountains become, they're quite technical and quite, the terrain is really impassable <laughs> at, at, at that altitude. And so it's, you know, very jaggedy, very sharp edges. Um, you get above tree line very quickly here. It's two to two to 3,000 feet in the area you're above tree line. So it's, I mean, it's beautiful. I love it. But I am flying through the mountains um, on that particular flight. Uh, but then 
a flight to the south is relatively flat. It's only, you know, 2,500 feet. Maybe there's some hills that we go over and then back down to the sea. Anchorage itself is pretty close to sea level. So I think that's sometimes when people imagine Alaska, you think, oh, it's really high. And in particular, you know, I'm thinking about people in the U.S. that are from like Colorado where, you know, they start at 5,000 feet. Well, we, we're starting at sea level and then we're going to the five and, and 7,000 feet. Um, but it's not common for me to land up there because nobody lives up there. It's too cold and, and too remote for people to live there in the winter. Now, we do occasionally make flights to Denali Base Camp. Um, there is a rescue helicopter that is based there, but it is a stripped-down B-3A star. All they do is pull them off the mountain and bring them to base camp, and then we come in from and pick them up at base camp and bring them to the hospital. So base camp is like, I think it's 7,500 feet or something like that. So it's not particularly high either, but it's all glaciated. Um, and I am, I, I, me personally, am flying over glaciers um, on the way to um, Seward, which I mentioned is one of the places that I frequently go to. Um, a very big ice field, actually. It's really cool. So that's something. It's very remote. As I said, I fly over a lot of areas that do not have good force landing areas. I will be in the trees um, or a swamp. Um, there's not a hard surface. Uh, it, it's often uneven. So, you know, I always tell my crew on the best of days, we're probably going to roll the helicopter on the auto coming in because it's not going to be flat. And, um, you know, it's just something that we, we accept. Yes, the daylight changes, uh, so it's starting to get dark now. Um, pretty much during the summer, we we're in the area that I live. We have about twenty hours of daylight, and then it kind of gets dusk. So if you're on the night shift, you do not need goggles for most of all of June and nearly all of July. Now I'm on the night shift this week, and I am using my goggles. It is hard dark um, at about. 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. or so. And then we will go all the way down that we will actually be using our NVGs during the daytime. Sometimes you can get more nighttime on your day shift than the night pilot gets on the night shift because we just inherently fly more during the day. Wow. So in, so in winter, when would sunrise and sunset? So be? in this area where I live, um, it's, it's going to sunrise around 10 and get dark around 334. Wow. Okay. So about five and a half hours or so of daylight. Um, and that's, you know, just for a six, six week period. I actually always think that the most difficult time to fly in Alaska is in the fall months. So basically September, October, and early November. And the reason for that is that we don't have any snow yet. As soon as we have snow, then we have good reflection and you can see fairly well at night, but it'll be really dark, dark. And even in the area that I'm flying in, even with the NVGs, sometimes there's not enough light that I can't, it's impossible to fly. Even with the NVGs, it's just too dark. And so they start scintillating, you can't see anything, and you turn around. So it's roughly summer there for you guys at the moment. So what, what sort of temperatures have you got there? Um, yeah, so today is probably, uh, it might it might be to 60. Today it's rainy and cloudy here. Um, and so that's, and we're really starting to get into our fall season. It's really, the weather has really shifted. We can have rain in the summer and, and IFR conditions from the rain in the summer, but um, you know, we actually had a really nice summer. We had very few um, weather turndowns or flights that we turned down for weather um, this summer. Uh, and, you know, it's easy. It's easy to make a weather decision in Alaska. So one thing that we have, which is really different from the rest of the U.S., is that we have aviation weather cameras. And so because there's not a formal weather reporting station in a lot of places that people fly, they put these weather cameras there. And what they'll do is they'll put them on the side of the mountain or in a pass somewhere, and it takes a photo every 
30 minutes, I think is what it is, or sometimes it's even less than that. But they will, they know that they'll mark some known landmarks, like this peak is this high, or if you can see this thing, it's this many miles of visibility. And so we use those cameras as our, a lot of primary weather information, um, because our, where we're going, the places that we're going are few and far between. So you're trying to interpret the weather in between. And so that's where we use those weather cameras. Um, and, and it doesn't exist in the rest of the U.S. They don't have those. The problem is they don't work at night, right? So you don't, you don't you're really guessing. Um, and so, for example, last night I um, had a flight that was a scene flight uh, to a location that was only 18 miles away. The weather in the two places in between were, you know, 3,300 feet, 3,400 feet. I even went outside to look for some glow for low clouds that would kind of have the city lights glowing on them. Didn't see a thing. By the time I got out there and picked up, I went to about 100 feet and came straight back down because it was that bad. And so that's what you have to do sometimes. You know, you just make your best guess. And for me, what's great about that is the company never questions those decisions. They're great. You know, they never say you should have gone or you shouldn't have gone. You know, you just do your best and they know that and they they never talk to you about it. They never, you know, it just is what it is. Um, and there's never a sense of wanting, you know, trying to push the weather. Now, my opinion is that everybody on a scene call gets a fair shot unless there's some reason that I know that it's not not flyable. So that's why I knew it wasn't great last night, but I thought, oh, I'm going to try this anyway. And I really thought I'd get a few <laughs> miles away before I had to turn around, not just straight up and straight back down. But that's the trick about flying in Alaska at night in particular. Uh, it's really hard to make some of those decisions because you're there's so many miles between weather stations that you really have to try to do your best to interpret. And as Once you said, it's not as like you can stop halfway and, and land somewhere and, uh, and wait it out. Often you, you're kind of committed. Right. And like I said, you know, frequently when I'm going, I'm saying, yes, I believe the weather is going to be good for three to five hours, which is a very long time in the winter to say, okay, yeah, the snow is going to hold off. Yeah, we're going to be all right. Now, obviously I can, you know, we can get to wherever we are and and we can sit there and wait and, you know, take longer and come back. And, you know, there's lots of options within that, but that's what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to say, yes, we can get there. We can bring the patient to the location and we will be able to get back without getting stuck. And there's been times where I've, I certainly had to turn around and go back to Anchorage, times when I've left here and had to turn around with a patient on board. And the reason we don't like to do that is because now that person has, you've, you've more or less delayed the medical care for that person because of that time gap that has happened. So we really try not to do that, but you know, you just do your best that you can do. Yeah. Now in flight manuals, there's always a section about cold weather ops and uh, most of my flying has been in, in Australia and the northern part of Australia and, and Queensland. So I kind of flicked through that chapter pretty quickly. <laughs> um, so things about uh, de-ice uh, and even different types of oils and fuels and things like that. Do you get into those sorts of considerations in winter? Yeah. So we do add a, um, an anti-icing to the fuel where, where I am working right now. And that's common and everybody just, it's, it's an additive that's put into the fuel and it's just kind of a, a supplement that's put in there and um, it's ratioed for you. Like we have in our fueling stations, the mechanics actually take care of that for us. Um, we do not have anti-icing as far as um, the blades. Um, and so that's, you know, you're not flying in icing conditions. Even when I was flying on the North Slope um, in the 139, we did not have anti-icing as far as that. Interestingly enough, like most helicopter pilots, that 139 had never really been tested in ice. So, of course, we all wanted to go find some ice and see how it performed, <laughs> which, of course, when you're looking for it to ice up, it won't. You know, as soon as you, you don't want it to ice up, it will. The A-Star doesn't have heated windshield, which is a real problem. That's where I think that more than you would think about getting ice on the blades and having that 
you know, frequently you'll read that, oh, the aircraft will be heavy and you'll lose performance because the aircraft will be heavy. That is not my experience. My experience is that the ice sheds unevenly and you start to become an out-of-balance washing machine flying through the air and shaking. That's what's really the problem is with ice. And in the A-Star, that's not even the problem. The problem is the windshield. It's very difficult to keep that clear. So we are very cognizant of that. Where I, when I was flying on the North Slope of Alaska, um, we were frequently flying, not frequently, but commonly flying in minus 40 um, Celsius, and which is, you know, same Fahrenheit. And um, the hydraulic fluid starts to get really jelly-like at that um, temperature. So now all of the aircraft up there were hangered. So you basically pull the aircraft out and you start it as quickly as you can. And then you do not shut it off. And so you drop your people off and you keep the aircraft running and then you come back and then you put it directly back in the hangar and, you know, you're pretty okay. But I have and did hear stories about people who, you know, even the sitting while they were running, waiting for their patients to or their passengers to offload, you know, would start to feel that jelly um, in the in the hydraulic fluid start to occur. So that's the thing that people notice, I think, more than anything. Um, plus, it's just—I mean, it's cold. Like, well, that's what I was going to say. So, what are you actually wearing when you're flying in that in that sort of oh, temperature? I mean, you're wearing so much gear. Like when I first started flying helicopters, I was really particular about the boots that I would wear, and now I can fly in like anything. I mean, you know, gloves and big parkas, and and um, you know, we're wearing like an overbib layer, um, and then heavy—we um, call them bunny boots. Um, they're just this big rubber boot that actually works quite well in cold weather, as long as you're not—you know—and and you can stay warm in a lot of things as long as you're moving but it's a sitting still and they put extra reinforcing on the doors and over the ventilate uh, intakes um, for the aircraft to keep try to keep some of that air out but you know every aircraft leaks and so it's it can be quite cold they usually put an additional heater in in the 212s we were flying on on the slope just to get um, some more heat coming into the cabin because um, it just couldn't keep up so we would stop flying at minus 50 but it was, I mean, I had seven, minus 70 degree days up there. And you, I mean, the, the walk from the aircraft outside or from one building to the next is all you want to be outside. You know, you have an instantaneous headache, even though you have, you know, all these layers on covering your forehead, you know, and we'd always wear goggles. And so you'd have that line between your hat and your goggles that would just like, oh, it'd be so cold. Um, so <laughs> I've flown in some pretty cold weather. Yeah. And there's a guy I'm trying to get on the show uh, coming up. He's, um, his name's Matt and he's, been uh, in Antarctica with the uh, the Japanese uh, crew down there, and uh, and again uh, an A star. Uh, so I'm looking forward to trying to capture him. But no, here in winter, like you know, it gets to eight degrees, and uh, we start shivering. And that's that's obviously centigrade. So yeah. Uh, what about navigation, getting around? Are you using uh, what sort of maps would you normally fly on? Well, we're using uh, we have like a dual 430 GPS installed, so that and then you know sectional charts that kind of thing, and and um, generally they work quite well. You know, generally the they're updated and the you know you, they're you have good information. It's it's accurate, um, and because people fly a lot in Alaska, I think that the the VFR sectionals are pretty good up here um, as far as you know what's printed on the map and and including stuff. And there's private airstrips all over the place up here, just small little areas that people have you know cut the trees down themselves and they fly their small little super cub out of or whatever. So some of those are even on there, and some of them are not. But you know those are around as well, and people share information pretty well. Um, so that's all good. Um, but so navigation is. Is not as much of a trick, I don't think, as you would imagine. Although um, 
you know, GPS is still coming in in a lot of locations. They're retiring some of the NDBs. And so they are making that switch over and it isn't switched over in, in some of the small communities that people are going in and out of, but not where I fly. Lorena, being closer to the poles, is there tricky stuff there with the magnetics and the compasses? Yeah, you just adjust. Um, you know, it's it's not as much as you would think. It's, you know, you just are aware of that. And, and you know, usually when I was flying on the North Slope, which is a lot closer, you have, um, you know, dual backup and, and that kind of thing. So, you know, if you actually had to rely on the old whiskey compass, you know, that's kind of a bad day. Multiple things have gone wrong. And, and that's probably when you would notice it more that you were confused and, and to remember those variations. But otherwise, you know, you just kind of don't really notice. At least I don't. Fair enough. Uh, and the, the airspace you're flying through, again, I'm guessing it's more, well, it's going to be uncontrolled because it's remote, but what sort of airspace do you have up there? Yeah, so we have, um, I do fly um, through a fair bit of, of Class G, which is uncontrolled, um, but the Anchorage airspace is actually n- is quite complex. It's not the busiest airspace, but it's very complex. Anchorage itself is surrounded by mountains and water, so it is a limited piece of kind of land that sticks out. And on that, you have one of the busiest um, seaplane or floatplane bases in the world. You have Anchorage International Airport, which has a lot of um, cargo and a lot of, you know, flights in and out as well. You have a very busy military airspace and you have a very busy class Delta airspace. And it's the trouble with flying in Alaska is that we often use geographical locations as reporting points. So if you're not familiar with that, you know, when someone says I'm at Potter's Marsh, you may not know where that is if you're not familiar with flying up here. And that's the trickiest bit is that then people say, well, I'm Anderson Lake going to Wolf Lake. Well, okay, but if you don't know those lakes, and those are not named generally on maps because the sectional is not that detailed, you're going to have a lot of trouble. And so that is one of the tricky things about flying up here. It's interesting too, because many of the operators up here will want you to have time flying in Alaska. You know, they won't ask you so much about mountain flying because mountain flying often means high altitude, and we actually don't fly at that high of altitude here. You know, it's it's rare for me to go above six thousand feet. I just don't have to do it. I don't need to do it that often. You know, when I was flying tours in Denali, we would go up to, to eight, nine, and ten, but you didn't really need to be above that either because we weren't going to the, we weren't circling and going to the top of Denali at twenty thousand feet. You know, just just around the general area. So what they'll want you to have is that Alaska time so that it's kind of showing that you're familiar with how things work in Alaska and flying remotely, some of those camera things. So it's an interesting split. Um, And so sometimes people can have a lot of experience flying, but if they don't have Alaska time, sometimes the operators will be a little bit hesitant to hire them on. Uh, Sounds like the classic worldwide um, catch-22 where you need to have the experience, but to get the experience, uh, you need the job there. Yeah, yeah, that's right. (laughs) All right. So there's obviously EMS. I imagine there's a bit of tourism and there's the oil and gas. What are the big industry players as far as employing uh, pilots and, and helicopter operators in Alaska? Yeah, so it's been kind of interesting um, because Bristow has pulled out, um, and so um, they are no longer in Alaska. That used to be a large player. Um, Era Helicopters is still up here. They're they're definitely um, large. Uh, we have some smaller, sort of smaller to medium sized operators that are becoming bigger in Alaska. So in the southeast region, Temsco is is picking up quite a bit. In the area that I'm in, we have Pathfinder, um, which is here, and 
can't think of another one right now. Evergreen is bought out by Ericsson. So now they are in the area as well. And then occasionally you'll have other operators that will come up as part of kind of a relationship that they have with the oil and gas industry in the Gulf of Mexico. So we have seen PHI up here, but they're only here in the summer. They don't tend to operate year round. And then there's a lot of um, little smaller operators that do utility work. Um, And so there's a guy in the Wasilla area that has a fleet of like 11 R44s who does a lot of utility work in remote locations and they'll slang and do other things with those up here as well. So, So those are kind of some of the major players And there's a lot of medium-sized players that are here as well. For new pilots who have got minimum hours, is it somewhere where they would pick up work or is it really a like a second or a third type job to go to Alaska? It's definitely a second or a third type job. The one place that you could potentially start would be doing tours and that would primarily be in the southeast area. And so you can sometimes get a, get a sort of like just after you finish that thousand hours, that always used to be the magic number. And now I think it actually might be a little higher and you could sort of get another job besides flight instructing after you had your thousand hours. But I think that Tempsco might hire you on with pretty minimal time. Um, they may even give you a turbine transition, but you are not going to get paid well. You're not, you know, you're just, it's a summer job. You're going to work really hard. They're not going to pay you really well, but then you're going to come out of that summer with, you know, some decent time and training, but that would probably be the really only entry level job you could get up here. Other than that, you're going to have to have some IFR time, some twin time and that kind of thing. Yeah. Okay. Uh, what about non-flying stuff? So when visitors come in and stay with you, where do you take them in Alaska or what do you show them as far as uh, on the ground uh, scenic things or, or activities? Yeah. So I, first of all, I love Alaska. So it's really fun for me to show it off. I really enjoy it. And I think that's why I enjoy tours so much. My sister actually owns a um, lodge um, that is north of Palmer. Um, it's called Sheep Mountain Lodge. Um, and so, you know, it would be common for me to take my friends and people that are visiting up there. Um, she's got a big glacier that is by them. Um, she and her husband were both um, dog mushers for a while. They don't have any dogs now, but they've both completed the Iditarod. So that's always an interesting thing to, for people to see is how you do that and how you set that up. Hiking in the mountains would be very common. I'm actually, um, I am at my apartment here is where I stay when I'm working. I am on the banks of the Kenai River, which is world-renowned salmon fishing. So that's really fun. Uh, Kayaking is something fun that I like to do with people out of the Seward area and to Northwestern Fjord. And then I really do love the Denali area. So to take a road trip up there and go camping is just beautiful. And it's all tundra up there. And I think that's what's interesting is it's different. You know, the area that I live in is is treed. It's really a, a boreal forest with kind of a mix of birch tree and spruce tree mix with lots of lakes. It's very, it's all glacier, you know, lots of glaciers in Alaska. So this is, the glacier has retreated longer ago, but then uh, further north, all tundra. So low scrub and lots of berries. And it's just, it's really neat. It's a really neat place. So, you know, I always encourage people to come up to Alaska, like the best times to visit would be in June, I think, prior to the mosquitoes coming out. (laughs) So before like early June is a really great time to visit Alaska. Um, early August is also really nice. It doesn't tend to, July can be quite rainy. Um, and then I always think it's really fun for people to come up in March because we have great snow. It's fun to be outside, but it's warmer and we have a lot more daylight that you can really enjoy it. It's not like coming in January where, you know, you might not be able to do a whole lot for a while. Yeah. It's funny because you just have these preconceptions about places and, uh, lots of rain and mosquitoes. It's just not a, uh, not a mental image I have of Alaska. 
Right, right, yeah, yeah. It is funny what you and and then again, that's my area, you know, where I live. So so in other areas, you know, it'll be different. But yeah, I would say mosquitoes would be something to put on your radar. <laughs> you <come to> Alaska. <laughs> All right, Lorena, and, and look, you've got and we're going long here in this interview too because you've got so much to say. It's really interesting stuff. But you, you're doing a lot of things outside of flying too. So you're doing writing and you're doing speaking, and I guess maybe some of that uh, stems from those early days when you were doing the teaching. Uh, but you want to, yeah. yeah. So you want to sort of talk out that sort of stuff and how that fits in with your flying life and and other things there. Right. Well, it has always been an interest of of mine. Um, you know, for many years I worked with um, a program of the 99s, which was called the Professional Pilot Leadership Initiative, and we did mentoring for other female aviators. And it's really a cool program because it's all online, and so we had women all over the globe that would. Uh, we would work with and they, it's kind of a year and a half program to kind of get them to um, meet their goals. And that's something that I feel very strongly about. You know, if you, if you were to ask me, you know, what's your passion in life? My passion in life is really to have people achieve their dreams. And, and for me, that's been helicopters, but it's also really seeing other people achieve their dreams. You know, it just brings me joy. And so I enjoy doing that. And, um, you know, my dad dying was a lot of a wake up call in, in many ways. And, um, I do have a Ted talk, uh, around that. I kind of tell that story, um, which you can link to on my website. But it's really the idea of, you know, there's no more, you know, some days like it's you just don't know. And I certainly that was how I was raised in my family. I don't think I would be a helicopter pilot without having some of those core values instilled in early on of, you know, you kind of choose your own adventure and you make your own way and you can do anything you set your mind to. But to see, you know, it just really becomes very real and very personal when you, when you lose someone. And, you know, certainly my dad did not expect that that was going to be his last day. And I think that he probably went out with the, you know, as riding his motorcycle in New Zealand is a pretty great way to go out. He would have, you know, been very pleased with that, but it really makes you pay attention to what really matters and really focusing on that. And so that's kind of the theme that, that I have on my website and, and with the work that I do is really thinking about that. And I have a, a group of women that I work with, which is an accountability group. And um, we work uh, weekly and meet up and talk about, you know, what are they up to in their lives? What's stopping them? And how do you work through those obstacles? Um, and it's pretty fun. I really enjoy it. And it's a nice balance. <clears throat> you know, um, EMS flying is, um, it's kind of a, it's either on or off, feast or famine. So we fly a lot more in the summertime, but it's a lot quieter in the wintertime. And so it's kind of a, a wintertime thing for me to do while I'm at work. It's kind of like being a firefighter, you know, an EMS pilot. And so between flights, I, I do writing and I um, work on some speaking engagements and, and uh, do some things like that, which I really enjoy. It's really fun. Oh, that's very cool. And the Professional Pilot Leadership Initiative, is that something that's still going on? Is there a website people can go to? Yeah. Mm-hmm. it's um, You can go through the 99s and then um, there'll be a tab on there for Professional Pilot Leadership Initiative. And you have to be a member of the 99s, but um, other than that, it's like a $20 application fee. It's super easy and you get assigned to someone who's kind of matched up with where you are or maybe a couple steps ahead of where you are in your career progression and just someone to kind of talk to. And, you know, there aren't a ton of women in aviation, so it's kind of a great um, support network that way as well. And, and it was, certainly it was for me going through, uh, as, I, as I said. All right, this could be a whole new conversation, but um, I haven't heard of the 99s. I've heard of Whirly Girls. But, yeah. um, so 99s, it's a, a female pilot Yeah, it was actually started. Amelia Earhart actually started that, and there were 99 people who showed up. That's why they call themselves the 99s. And so, um, yeah, you'll find that as well. And I really think that there's a place for all of those organizations. Um, the 99s doesn't specify whether you're a professional pilot or a 
helicopter pilot or, or your general aviation, it doesn't matter to them. Um, I am also a member of the Whirly Girls, which I think is, is really a cool organization. And then also women in aviation, which then doesn't just, it's not just for pilots. So it would be air traffic controllers and engineers and mechanics and those kind of things as well, um, which is also a really great organization. Um, so yeah, there's some cool stuff out there now. All right, well, look, I might get some of those links off you afterwards, and I'll include those in the uh, in the show notes and, and the blog post for this episode. So we'll pass those around. Sure, sounds great. Look, thank you so much. I think um, that's probably out of time as far as people's uh, attention, and they've, they've well and truly got to work and sitting in their car park if they've uh, been listening on their commute. So, uh, Lorena, thank you so much. It's a heap of information there and really, really interesting. So it's great to see that you're back in, in Alaska and where you started, and you, you definitely sound passionate about it and uh, you're doing a really important job there. Yeah, well, thanks, Mix. It's great to talk to you, and I'm happy to you know, chat with people, your listeners, if they have more questions or anything like that. You know, They could just shoot me an email. No problem. Perfect. And, and again, your website, if you just want to give your details or your contact yeah, details. Yeah, so it's um, lorenanap.com, and it's L-O-R-E-N-A, and the nap is spelled K-N-A-P-P.com, and then there'll be a link for email on there as well and, and all the other places to follow kind of stuff. Perfect. Okay, thank you very much. All right. Great to talk to you, Mick. Thanks. Look, I hope you enjoyed listening to Lorena as much as I did chatting with her. I don't see myself flying in Alaska anytime soon. So to have that chance to hear a little bit more about operations there and what it's like on the ground was really great. If you've flown in Alaska yourself and have a good story to share, or if you have a question for Lorena that you want to put on the blog, you can do that over at rotarywingshow.com. We are running long on time today, so I'll keep it short and finish up with two more things. Firstly, if it's relevant for you and you're involved in the marketing of your aviation company, then check out the sponsors for today's show, trainmorepilots.com. There are a bunch of resources that you can download there that will help with your online marketing. And if someone else does the marketing for your business, then tell them about it so that you can get more hours or get a pay rise. And that's trainmorepilots.com. Second one is that I'm putting together a list of the best helicopter novels as recommended by you, the professional helicopter pilot slash aircrew. I've already asked the question on the show Facebook page over at facebook.com forward slash rotary wing show. Past guest Eddie Ann Gerber is recommending Chicken Hawk is a classic and dead man flying sven atkins seconds chicken hawk and has added uh, apache by ed macy michael reeves is suggesting cyclic and collective uh, while drew uh, burkett has previously passed on uh, three books so he's passed on low level hell snake pilot and sweating the metal beck strickland and nigel hood are also recommending apache and chris brosnan has put in to the limit by tom johnson so what is your favorite recommendation? Let me know on feedback at rotarywingshow.com or via Facebook or Twitter, whichever method floats your boat. I'll collect all those responses and put together a PDF so that you can see what other aircrew reckon are essential reading. To make sure you get that list of books and get notifications of when future episodes are posted, then head over to the website and sign up for the email list. Next episode. We are talking with John Ecott, who joins with us and shares his amazing flying career that spans across the Royal Navy, offshore oil and gas, search and rescue, police, fires, aerial photography, 
aerial crane work, banner towing, and flying in the Antarctic, just to name a few. In John's words, he has never had to work a day in his life. Thanks again for tuning in. You've been listening to the Rotary Wing Show. I've been your host, Mick Cullen. Don't forget to share the show on social media and bring over your fellow helicopter fanatics. Thoughts and opinions expressed on the show are those of the host and interviewees and don't reflect those of their employers. Till next time, fly safe.